Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, and I'm the managing editor of the U.S. Center's daily blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. Every so often, we take a break from our regularly scheduled ballpark programming to bring you something extra. On March 20th, 2019, the U.S. Center hosted Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut for his talk, The Dangers of Brexit for the Special Relationship. Senator Murphy, who is a member of the Foreign Relations Committee, spoke on the future of the U.S.'s relationship with one of its oldest allies in the context of the U.K.'s looming exit from the European Union. Well, I'd like to welcome everyone. Um, so my name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm the head of the International Relations Department and the director of the U.S. Center, which is um, hosting um, tonight's talk and, and uh, discussion. It's a great pleasure to uh, introduce um, tonight's speaker, U.S. Senator uh, Christopher Murphy. He hails from the great state of Connecticut. Um, I'm from Connecticut. Uh, <laughs> he is... Uh, He's a, a couple others. Yes. Okay. Very good. Um, and that is everybody that lives in Connecticut. No, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big state. It's a, it's a big state. It's a big state. So it's just I've spent many years in Texas. So he is um, Senator Murphy is the um, is a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's currently the ranking um, member on its subcommittee on. Uh, the Near East, South Asia, Central Asia, and counterterrorism. Um, I think many Americans um, perhaps know him best for uh, his tireless fight um, for gun control in the wake of the tragic shooting um, at Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012. Um, prior to becoming a, a senator, he served as three terms uh, as a um, member of Congress from uh, Connecticut, where he worked on a host of issues that range from uh, health care to housing for veterans and people with disabilities uh, to investment uh, in manufacturing. Um, he's a graduate of Williams College in Massachusetts, a fantastic college. Um, and he received his law degree from the University of Connecticut uh, School of Law. And UConn is also great, and not just for basketball. <laughs> we, we learned of the senator's visit um, to London last week. And we're, we're, you know, I'm just delighted to see so many people here. Uh, the topic is, well, what else? It's Brexit. Uh, but it's Brexit <coughs> with a twist. Um, uh, Senator Murphy will um, be helping us understand um, what Brexit might mean for Britain's special relationship with the United States, how it might uh, change the, um, the tenor, the tone, the direction of the relationship. Um, and as usual, after the talk, what I'll do is I'll do my level best to get as many questions in as possible. He's really set this up, so he's going to just talk for a few minutes and then a field question. So it really will be a kind of an opportunity for um, an exchange. Um, if you haven't already done this, please turn your phones to silent because this is being recorded. Um, and so with that, please join me in giving Senator Murphy a warm LSE welcome.
Well, uh, Peter, thank you very much for having me today. Thank you for uh, arranging this on relatively a short notice for inviting me here, and really great to see uh, a full room. Uh, I am going to make you suffer through uh, a short uh, 10 minutes of prepared remarks so that I can get out what I uh, want to get out, uh, but then I'm really looking forward to having a good back and forth um, and uh, really interested to hear what you uh, want to cover and talk about. Um, uh, again, uh, really privileged to be here at LSE uh, today. Um, I actually spent one of my most delightful years uh, of my life just uh, down the road from uh, here studying at uh, Exeter College at Oxford. I actually got the chance to study under the renowned uh, British political scientist David Butler, who for years wrote every book there was to read on uh, summaries of British general elections and getting to know him and getting to know the country. Um, during that time was really the, the thrill of a lifetime, which is just barely eclipsed by um, the thrill of getting to be here today now as a member of the United States uh, Senate. Um, so I know it sounds cliche, but we have to say it every time we come, the United States and the United Kingdom, we share this unique and this uh, unbreakable relationship. Um, these days, my country's administration is turning inward from the world. Uh, we're temporarily, largely, out of the business of solving big crises around the world. But when we were, and when we start doing so again after this administration, um, you have been and you will be our first phone call. That's another cliche that bears repeating. It has been the US and Britain that has solved some of the biggest quandaries around the world. Individually, we're strong nations, uh, but together we've shaped the international rules and systems that govern much of the globe's commerce and standards for democratic nations today. Uh, and my country's voice and our voice when we lead together has been amplified over the years, many times by Britain's leadership role in the European Union. But as of today, Britain is on a course to leave the EU in a matter of days. And I'm here to tell you tonight that there are many members of Congress in Washington who, like me, are really sad that you're going and very worried about how this is going to impact our relationship. And that's what I'm here to talk about tonight. Now, how Britain proceeds over the next few days or few weeks, um, that's really going to be determined by the British people themselves, yourself. I'm certainly not here to tell you how to do anything. America, we're pretty good at throwing around unsolicited advice to others. Um, but uh, that, is, uh, that is not my role, and I'll try to steer clear of it as much as I can. But the United States does have important equities in the United Kingdom. Side of it. And there are a number of risks to the special relationship, depending on whether and how the departure is negotiated. Now, President Trump and his family have been and still are cheering Britain's withdrawal from the EU. Uh, in yesterday's bizarre op-ed, the president's son makes the case that Brexit and the re-election of Donald Trump are one and the same, and that criticism of Brexit should be somehow equated with the special counsel's investigation into the Trump family's corruption. Um, this 
is a wild connection to make, but it just stands in a long line uh, of actions that uh, President Trump and his family have taken to try to push Britain out of the European Union. And so I worry that President Trump's gleeful cheerleading of Britain's departure from Europe may gloss over potential bumps in the road ahead for our bilateral relationship. And so I just want to make sure everybody hears concerns that many of us have in Congress about your path and how it affects our path. So first, let me just tell you why so many of us in America, Republicans and Democrats, are really worried about Brexit. Um, and frankly, still hoping that you might reconsider. Um, we, uh, we love doing business with Britain, and it's a whole lot easier to do business with Britain if you're part of the EU. In addition to our shared history, we are each other's largest foreign investors. U.S. companies have uh, over $600 billion in the U.K. 40% of my small state's exports go to Europe. Earlier today, I had lunch with some of the biggest U.S. companies that are located here in London, and they love being here. But they love being here because it's at the heart of the European Union, and it's just going to get a whole lot harder for America to do business with you and Europe if you're not in Europe. Stability of Europe is a core interest of the United States. No one should take for granted seven decades of European peace after countless centuries. responsibility for defending NATO allies. Given this history, it would be detrimental for the United States to encourage more countries to leave the EU or otherwise weaken the alliance. We shouldn't take for granted as well the allure of future EU membership and how that has kept countries on the organization's periphery um, from continuing positive economic and democratic reforms. I remember a 2014 trip that I took to Serbia and Albania, when uh, the Albanian Prime Minister Eddie Rama's historic visit to Belgrade was being threatened by a flare-up in Albanian nationalist activity in Serbia. Um, it was the dream of joining a strong, cohesive European Union that calmed those tensions. Rama eventually rescheduled his visit, and when he finally came to Belgrade, uh, the first Albanian Prime Minister to do so, uh, he said that his country didn't want to be part of a greater Albania. They wanted to be part of a united Europe. As Europe gets weaker, um, that attraction for countries on its periphery to align itself themselves with Europe rather than with some other place like Beijing or Moscow loses its luster. Further, American foreign policy, with current notable exceptions, seeks to quell Russia's desire to expand its sphere of influence and reestablish a Russian empire, extending into Europe. The Kremlin has, of course, been uh, more than a bit player in the Brexit debate. They are salivating at the prospect of the breakup of the European Union. And if Britain leaves, then Putin and his cronies will just ramp up their efforts to undermine the EU and other nations and hope that Britain's departure is the first of many. I've heard it said that the current drama associated with Britain's choice to leave has strengthened the rest of the European Union because no other country wants to go through what Europe, what Britain is going through. But the messiness of divorce say that they're going to stay together just to avoid the pain of the breakup, most of those divorces still happen. Russia is going to exploit the bubbling nationalism in other countries throughout the continent 
and look for the next Britain. Don't let anybody tell you that the EU is forever. If it were to fall, then the primary beneficiary would be a resurgent Russia. And lastly, my country watches China just as much as it watches Russia. As China rises, there's this question being posed to the world. Whose standards and rules are going to apply for the next 100 years? The set of consumer protections, food safety standards, financial rules that were developed by the U.S., Britain, and Europe, or those pushed by Beijing? This is an open question. And a to China. As my nation walks away from the world's rule-setting forums, China jumps in. But now Britain is talking about walking away too, at least from the EU. And our collective diminished power to counteract China's desire to run standards down into the ground, it imperils all of us. So listen, our president is going to try to push you out the European door as quickly as possible. But that's not how the majority of Congress feels. And when he's gone, we are all going to still be there in Congress. And so that's why it's important for you to understand our perspective, not just the administration's perspective. So lastly, what does this mean practically for our relationship? First, let's talk about this U.S.-Britain trade deal that President Trump has promised. The idea seems to be that the United States will swoop in and ink a deal or a series of deals with the U.K. that could make up for any loss, uh, economic loss, from the departure from the EU. Here's my prediction. It's not going to happen. The more Trump connects Brexit with his own brand of race-baiting nationalism, as his son did this week, the more that his critics in Congress thing that seems to reward countries breaking up a multilateral institution like Europe. And there will be many friends of the EU like me who are also friends of Britain, but worry about the signal sent if a trade deal with a nation that has just forsaken the EU is slotted ahead of a trade deal with the full EU. I love our relationship with Britain, but I won't support a bilateral deal with Britain until we make our best efforts to do a trade deal with the European Union. And I know lots of Democrats and some Republicans feel the same way. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe a deal goes forward. But just be forewarned, if it does, as the relatively more powerful negotiating partner, the U.S. is going to demand concessions on issues like agriculture that could be deeply unpopular to British voters. If your economy is hemorrhaging in the wake of Brexit, you're going to be in an even weaker negotiating position. If the UK was negotiating as part of the EU, you'd be negotiating from a much stronger position. Think of this. What happens if after you leave the European Union, after you have gotten the right to negotiate on your own, you are the only country in Europe that is importing chlorine-washed chicken from the United States. Now, I can make a defense of our agricultural practices, but that may be a reality of how this all works out if you are negotiating alone and the EU continues to negotiate together. And if it does go forward, there's another wrinkle. At the very least, some influential members of Congress, most notably the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee in the House of Representatives, Richie Neal, they oversee all the trade deals in the House. 
they are going to demand that a precondition to any trade deal uh, will be a negotiated Brexit arrangement that protects the Northern Ireland peace process and does not require borders to be put back up between Ireland and Northern Ireland. I, I don't need to tell you why this is so important, but recent surveys have found significant levels of support in Northern Ireland for illegal and extreme protests against any type of north-south border checks. And with our nation's large Irish and American population and uniquely close relationship with the UK, we did play an important role shepherding that peace process. And we've got to continue as a nation to help safeguard the Good Friday Agreement. The influence of America's Irish diaspora, it's strong. And many uh, of our members in Congress will be firmly against doing that trade deal with Britain absent a Brexit agreement that includes a guarantee that those borders will not be put back up. Now, I believe that Prime Minister May and others in the government are committed to this as well. But in my meetings today, it became pretty clear that a clean break from Europe and the complete protection of the Good Friday Agreement are likely mutually exclusive. Somebody is going to have to make a choice, either now or sometime in the near future. As you know better than me, when the initial Brexit referendum was proposed, it was presented as a simplistic idea that was long on promises and short on specifics. It's clear now that very few of the promises that were made are going to come true and that very specific, very tough choices are now required. Now, I'm watching this all from pretty far away in Washington, and I legitimately haven't followed every detail of the debate as closely as you all have. But it seems to me that having time to get this right is probably better than having less time. It's hard to imagine a more consequential decision than deciding whether to proceed with a hard break with the European Union, except some form of compromise agreement negotiated by Prime Minister May, or remain a leading member of the world's largest political and economic bloc. In the United States, instead of cheering on Brexit, and promising an individual trade agreement for any country that contemplates leaving the EU, I've argued that we should be doing the opposite, that we should be binding ourselves closer to the EU and beginning serious discussion of a trade agreement that will align ourselves more closely with the European Union. In the coming decades, the size of China's economy and its military are going to grow they're likely surpassing the United States and the EU individually. And the only way to prevent China from dictating terms to the world uh, is to join forces with Europe. And we'd be much stronger if you were a part of that. Of course, lastly, it's not just our economies, but our values and our freedoms that are at stake. In 1941, at a really dark point in European history, President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill met for the first time, began a series of conversations that resulted in the Atlantic Charter. This declaration set forth a common vision for a post-war world based on values and principles, something that was pretty unique at the time. We often fall short of the standards that we set for ourselves, but the values both of our countries stand for are the gold standard around the world. Authoritarian leaders are actively seeking to undermine the appeal of liberal democracy and multilateral cooperation. And so we all, no matter what happens here over the next few weeks, have to work harder to improve and defend these institutions and not allow the dark strains of nationalism and isolationism to make a comeback. 
Britain's going to make its own decision in the coming days and weeks. But you should know that Donald Trump Jr. doesn't speak for me. I don't see democracy dying in Britain. I see it alive and well. But a fully functioning democracy works best when its deciders, the citizens and the voters, have all of the relevant information before them when faced with a momentous history-changing decision. Your relationship with the United States will not be totally unaffected by a decision to leave the EU. We are not likely coming to the rescue if things go south. Now, many of us might hope that Britain reconsiders, but if you don't, we simply hope that Britain stays as close to Europe as possible and that this agreement does right by Northern Ireland, because without the preservation of the Good Friday Agreement, it makes it a lot harder on people like me to help our bilateral relationship through this transition. You have so much responsibility in your hands right now over the coming days and weeks. I know that our unbreakable bond can survive this moment, but only if we keep on talking to each other, only if we are honest with you about where we stand. Uh, and that's why I decided to come here this week. Uh, to LSE, uh, and to Peter, and to all of you, thank you very much for having me here tonight. Senator, there, I think you made news. No bilateral trade deal likely with the U.S. after Brexit. And that's how I – that's what it'll – it'll be in the front pages tomorrow. Um, um, you know, I'm tempted to actually ask you a bunch of different questions here. Um, I was going to ask you about Donald Jr., but you've preempted there. Um, <laughs> I mean, while he was doing that, um, the father was inviting Bolsonaro uh, into NATO um, or proposing that um, yesterday. It gives new meaning to NATO enlargement, the idea that Brazil, Brazil might become part of NATO. So, you know, Britain – anyway, um, I, the, I guess the question I have for you just to start us off is – so you make a very good case about um, – what the downsides really are um, for um, you know, Britain uh, does ultimately kind of like pull the trigger here and, and, and Brexit really happens and, and so forth. A lot of what people are concerned and that it's not, you know, in a sense it's turning its back on um, a kind of rules-based order. Um, what a lot of people here, it seems to me, are very, very focused on is the U.S. kind of turning its back on the rules-based order. And, um, I mean, that's like topic number one for like right. the U.S. Center. Um, and, and so I guess the question is, um, and this is a, a conversation I have with a lot of people, let's imagine it's 2020, um, you know, um, and um, we're into the election, and, and Donald Trump doesn't get reelected. Um, maybe a guy named Beto ends up being. <laughs> so, um, how does the U.S. restore the confidence that it seems? What I sense and feel from a lot of people is that a sense that America's commitments are not quite as credible as they used to be. And how does one restore that? 
Um, you know, I mean, there's damage with respect to NATO. Um, you hear more of this actually on the continent than you do here, but you hear it here as well. And so kind of just looking out, um, because I, I will say just one last thing. Some people increasingly feel this is not about Donald Trump, but that there's something deeper in the United States. Pullback and retreat by the U.S. Where are you on that? Yes, easy is uh, a mirror effect between uh, what has uh, happened here in Britain with respect to the surprise Brexit vote and in the United States with the surprise election of Donald Trump. There are many of the same influences at play. Um, in the United States, what has happened is that we have made a series of purposeful decisions to hollow out our middle class, to, um, to constrain economic mobility, uh, to hold people down so that they can't survive in this new global economy. Uh, and so when you have 40 percent of Americans who can't come up with $300 in the case of a medical emergency, that's a reality. 40 percent of Americans don't have $300 um, without borrowing money if they had a medical emergency. Um, uh, scapegoating. Um, immigrants and China and all sorts of uh, others for the problems of the American middle class. Um, and I don't know the full story of uh, how the Brexit vote won here, but I certainly know that there were uh, a lot of there was a lot of blame cast on new entrants to the country as Trump did in the United States. Um, the difference here, though, is that um, Americans are not clamoring for us to withdraw from the world. They want some solution for the new global economy. Um, but there is not a broad cheerleading for Trump's assaults on NATO or the United Nations. His base response to that, but that's not coming from the same popular uprising um, that, um, uh, that, that is part of some of the more economically populist parts of his uh, agenda. And also, um, while his term is not done yet, we haven't left NATO. We haven't left the United Nations. And so whoever the next president is um, has the ability to re-engage with those institutions. Um, this decision is permanent. Um, if you decide it's a mistake, it's pretty hard to get back in. I think some of the damage that we've done to our credibility around the world um, is hard to repair. Um, but much of it can be uh, as long as we elect a new president who's committed to breathing life back into those international uh, institutions. Uh, and that's what I worry about. I worry about, um, uh, I worry about Britain making a permanent decision um, that's different than the temporary one that American voters have made in the election of President Trump. Great. Okay, I'm going to open it up. Um, I've got a hand right here. Right in the middle. Yeah. Uh, wait, wait for the uh, microphone. And just briefly introduce yourself. And I, I'm uh, Kishan. I'm second year IR student. Um, one of the things I think that Brexit and Trump's election really highlighted is that politicians can't separate domestic policy from foreign policy. Um, so I wanted to know what your thoughts are on how 
America going forward can articulate a foreign policy that actually speaks to the concerns of its citizens at home and their domestic policy concerns, and in particular, whether there's a democratic nominee who has a especially coherent foreign policy vision that addresses the domestic concerns and domestic policy issues. That was my second news. I was going to endorse a Democrat for president. <laughs> Glad you asked that question. Um, no, I think you're exactly right. Um, uh, you know, listen, there is a, um, uh, you know, if you, if you threw a, a rally for free trade in the United States, um, you know, nobody would show up. Uh, it's, um, it, is, it is not popular right now in the United States, not because people don't understand that the world is global, not because they think that we're actually better off closing up shop, but because they feel like the government has not equipped them to survive in a new global economy. In the United States, a college education uh, is 300% more expensive in inflation-adjusted dollars than it was when I was born in 1973. Um, and so Americans who now know they need a college education, not a high school education in order to survive, find that they can't afford it. And so without any plausible means of actually being able to get the jobs in this new economy, um, they are attracted to are right. Um, the, the phenomenon in America of more candidates being elected to the highest levels of office who are anti-trade is a result of domestic policy mistakes uh, that we have made. Um, and uh, the United States will never explicit in terms of how we uh, connect, uh, connect the two together. All the way in the back, blue shirt, uh, bright blue. <laughs> I'll come to you afterwards. Uh, as I understand it, that um, the EU came pretty close to, to uh, blacklisting Connecticut as a tax haven. I just wondered, without, um, without uh, Britain's voice there standing up for Anglo-Saxon finance, whether you worry that Connecticut is going to have Actually to... Actually, not uh, from Connecticut. No, no right. <laughs> uh, whether Connecticut is going to have to sort of mend its ways a little bit. There's no win. I don't know. I don't know that I. I don't know that I. That I. Uh, that I knew that. Uh, but um, um, well, I mean, I. I, I, I I guess one of the things that's, you know, one of the things that is true is that, um, you know, Britain has been an important voice inside the EU in general with respect to uh, financial services standards. And, you know, one of the interesting discussions happening in real time in Britain is uh, whether or not uh, you can protect the Northern Ireland peace process by um, sort of being halfway out of Europe, being technically out of Europe but still married to European standards or still part of the customs union, um, that would make Britain a rules taker, not a rules maker. You'd have to follow all the rules of Europe without actually being in Europe. And, the, and, and likely the biggest exposure in that arrangement would be in the financial services sector where Britain has had a lot of effect on the financial services rules inside Europe. If Britain's no longer inside the European Union, financial services sector rules may look really different, but Britain may still be forced to comply with them if that's the way that it ends up uh, solving the border issue in 
Northern Ireland, so I'm sure that totally didn't answer your question, but, um, but that is one of the effects of one of the arrangements being talked about. Other hands, woman right over, right over here, the black turtleneck T-shirt. Good evening, Senator. Thank you for your talk. Um, I wanted to ask a question about what you feel the role of Congress is in making sure that the right uh, that that the best sort of policy for the interests of the U.S. is followed, or in, in influencing the president in the right direction. So. Um, you know, Congress is a very is is a very effective check on the president with respect to domestic policy. Um, you know, president can't you know get a tax plan or an immigration plan uh, or a new spending plan into uh, effect without uh, it being passed by the United States Congress. Um, and given the fact that Congress is right now split between Republicans and Democrats, that means that the president can't do much domestically. Uh, unless he has the agreement of both parties. Obviously, an exception to that is this national emergency that the president just declared um, around uh, immigration at the border. I would guess that the courts are going to strike that down and tell him that if he wants to build a wall with Mexico, he actually has to get the money appropriated from Congress. Where the checks and balances don't work as well is on foreign policy. Um, and, and maybe this is the direction that you're um, uh, that your question is going. Um, you know, Congress has largely gotten out of the business of war making, um, in part because wars are messier than they used to be. Um, armies don't march against each other in, uh, across open fields. There aren't peace treaties that wrap up hostilities uh, neatly. Uh, and so when the enemies are hard to define and the wars seem to never end, Congress just decided to punt and give the responsibility to the president to define who we're fighting and where we're fighting and when the fighting ends. That's not how the Constitution works. And I would argue that the United States today is involved in several illegal wars uh, around the world. I would argue that Congress should stop funding those illegal wars. Um, and I would put the war in Yemen uh, at the top of that list. Uh, and though even though and, and, and though I believe we should be fighting ISIS, I also believe uh, that the war against ISIS uh, and the 2,000 troops inside Syria are unauthorized and illegal as well. Um, so Congress needs to have the courage to get back into the game uh, and start having what are very difficult debates about who we fight and when we fight them and how we fight them. And until we do that, uh, we are um, outsourcing a core constitutional responsibility to the president. Um, similarly, um, on trade, uh, we need to recapture our authority as well. Um, the president is engaged in these never-ending multi-headed trade wars um, with Europe, with Canada, with, uh, with China. And he is often using a national security exemption um, in order to uh, enact tariffs. Normally, if you want to slap a tariff on a country, you've got to come to Congress. Uh, we gave an exception for national security reasons to the president, which he has used in cases where there is no national security reason. His tariff is applied for economic reasons. Congress should amend or repeal that provision and take back the power uh, to enact tariffs. So um, I'm very critical of Congress's um, inability to, uh, to do our duty when it comes to overseeing the foreign policy of this administration 
and frankly, um, uh, other administrations. We didn't do such a good job of overseeing Obama's foreign policy either. Uh, and it's harder than ever before, but I would argue just as necessary. Now there's a hand all in the blue back there. I'll come, I'll come up. Hi. Uh, my name is Josh Vanderplug, and I work for one of those multilateral institutions that Trump is constantly attacking. Um, but I would say that, you know, one of Trump's disregards of norms that I might agree with in certain circumstances at least is kind of no longer tiptoeing around um, very important policy issues in other countries just in the name of diplomatic protocol. Um, so I really appreciate your willingness to speak frankly tonight on your own views, but I must say that I don't hear that many other American politicians standing up either against Brexit or at least in support of a softer Brexit. So why don't you think that is that other people aren't following your lead and is there, I mean, I know it's late, but is there anything that they can do to support British politicians who might feel the same way? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I, I do think that, uh, I, I don't think there was much mistaking where President Obama stood uh, on, this, uh, on this matter. So he might have, you know, engaged in more careful diplomatic speak, but I think people understood where the Obama administration uh, stood on this. Um, I will say there is, as a consequence of Congress withdrawing from our constitutional responsibilities to be a co-equal branch on foreign policy with the, with the executive, we have just lost the capacity in Congress to, um, to talk about these issues knowingly. Um, you know, the foreign policy bench in the United States Senate um, is a lot thinner than it was 20 years ago. It used to be that you had to wait years to get on the Foreign Relations Committee in the United States Senate. I got on the Foreign Relations Committee the day that I showed up <laughs> um, uh, because uh, there aren't as many members of Congress who really want to play a role in the world, which means when a big moment happens, like Brexit, there aren't uh, a lot of members of the Senate or Congress who feel confident enough uh, ab about their knowledge of the world, of the European Union, of the bilateral relationship to speak up or to make a trip over here to talk about it. Uh, and so, you know, part of my mission, and this is a, a, maybe more a political mission, is to try to convince more members of my party to spend more time thinking uh, about the world. Uh, and, um, you know, so far, I, you know, I've, I've been a little surprised at how little national security talk there's been in the early stages of the Democratic presidential campaign um, in the states. I hope that some of my friends, some of my good friends that are running for president, um, speak up on issues like Brexit, because I think there's a huge opportunity with President Trump to close what is called the national security gap. Um, you know, that's the, the difference. Traditionally, a lot more voters trust Republicans on national security than trust Democrats. Uh, I think there's an opportunity to close that in the 2020 election, but not if Democrats aren't weighing in uh, on topics like this. Uh, let's come right down here to the front. Um, I'll fill the one of the newer students here. <laughs> I'm Hold on, here, here we go. So everybody can hear you. from the management department. In 2016, just before Brexit and the Trump election, uh, there was a presentation by Javier Solana, the former Secretary General of NATO, who was arguing against the Obama administration's effort to increase, get the Europeans to pay up a little bit more and put the money into hardware and men. Whereas he argued that Russia cannot actually match the NATO in terms of hardware and men, and therefore they are going to attack on cyber warfare. 
uh, and that some seems to have come true. Now, what is the U.S. and Europe doing about that to counteract that? So in the, uh, in the President's first budget, uh, he proposed cutting uh, the State Department by 40 percent in order to help fund a $50 billion increase in the Department of Defense's budget. Uh, now, I'm a big believer in peace through military strength. I think the United States has done a whole lot of good by being a military juggernaut. Um, we made a whole lot of mistakes as well, um, but I think there is a lot of truth to the fact that um, uh, that a strong American military as part of uh, multilateral and bilateral alliances keeps big parts of the world safe. At the same time, it's totally misunderstanding the threats that are posed to the United States and our allies uh, to think that building a whole bunch more aircraft carriers and jet planes and tanks are going to keep us safe. Um, and it is maddening to me that this president doesn't understand that. I'll give you an example. Um, so Congress has tried to cure for this president's sort of military-only lens um, into the world. <clears throat> we passed a provision in a uh, budget a couple of years ago to transfer $60 million from the defense budget to the State Department to set up a new counter-propaganda center uh, to be able to push back against uh, the Russian purchase of all sorts of media outlets in and around their periphery. The Trump administration, when Secretary Tillerson was Secretary of State, refused to accept the transfer, refused to accept the transfer, couldn't even spend $60 million on fighting propaganda, which is arguably one of the most um, serious threats to democracy, uh, to the United States, and to our allies. Secretary Pompeo finally, when he became Secretary of State, accepted the transfer. They're standing up that capacity. But it has literally been a daily chore to try to get a relatively small amount of money reprogrammed to fight um, uh, on this non-military front uh, against disinformation. Um, I put out a plan, which you can all find on my website, called Rethinking the Battlefield, which argues that we should be plussing up the State Department and the USAID by 50 billion dollars, that we should be doubling the size of our non-military capacity over overseas if we really want to fight things like disinformation, corruption, pandemic disease, petro-rich energy dictators, um, global warming, all of the things that, um, that aircraft carriers plan, literally line item by line item, as to how you would staff up these capacities. And uh, I'm shopping it around to all my friends who are running for president, hoping that one of them uh, wins and takes it up uh, as a means to better protect us. But it is a daily fight to try to get my government to recognize that, well, a strong military is important. Um, if you aren't standing up other new capacities, you aren't recognizing the threats uh, that exist today. Any of those Democratic candidates showing up? <laughs> <laughs> um, woman way in the, in the back there. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Senator. Thank you for a wonderful uh, lecture. Uh, there are three predominant pillars of, the, of a society, uh, which is political power, social power, and capital power. However, it is really obvious that in United States, the capital power has comprehensively overtaken the other tools, which lead to legalization of corruption in a way. 
So, for instance, the richest ten Americans can put huge impacts on the final decision making of White House. But on the contrary, the top 100 uh, Chinese have far lesser, I mean, influence on politics. So, my question is that: Will there be any comprehensive political reform in United States since the、uh, American democracy become more and more? Incompetent to deal with global and domestic issues. Thank you.、Um, so、uh, I certainly hope so. HR one,、um, uh, uh, the first bill introduced by the new House Democratic majority,、uh, was a democracy reform bill, an election reform bill, a campaign finance reform bill, a, a voter engagement reform bill. Um, and that was a sign from the new Democratic majority to the country that this was the number one priority:、um, uh, changing uh, American democracy to elevate the masses, the, the voices of those who have been drowned out by the very affluent few.、Um, included in that package of reform, for instance, was、uh, new disclosure requirements on donations to political campaigns. Um, frankly, we have no idea who's funding the majority of political advertising in the United States any longer, because it largely flows through、uh, unaccountable super PACs, we call them,、uh, where you don't have to disclose your donors.、Um, and so,、uh, my party has tried to be very explicit、uh, about the reforms that we would undertake to try to elevate the voices of、uh, average voters and decrease the power of. Um, of folks with a lot of influence, and I will say, though you know Trump has you know shown zero interest in democracy reform or election reform. To the to the, to the contrary, he's frustrated all of our efforts to do so. He got elected、um, by spending the last two weeks of the campaign calling Washington D.C. a swamp and running against the swamp. He he was the reform candidate in that election, despite the fact that he didn't do anything about reforming democracy.、Uh, and so it was a sign that the American public really is salivating for somebody who's going to come in and make real changes to the way in which our democracy uh, works. Um, uh, campaign finance reform at the top of that list. And so again, I would you know I would hope that for us this is a big issue in the 2020 presidential election, and that we have a. Candidate running for president who is going to put specific, concrete proposals on the table、uh, to try to reduce the power of those moneyed elites,、um, in particular through the way that they manipulate the campaign finance system.、Um, how about right down here? This woman right here. I'll come over there. Thank you.、Um, as your as one of your constituents, thank you for coming. Where?、Um, <laughs> What town? Milford. All right. Yeah. I've heard of it. Yeah. Has <laughs> <laughs> been、um, election material. This <laughs> would be if the U.S. and the U.K.'s relations sort of fell apart, if this bilateral agreement did not work out, et cetera. How do you think this might impact、um, sort of fragile relationships abroad, such as the fact that both the U.K. and the U.S. are involved in supporting Saudi-led、um, strikes on Yemen and other areas in the world that might suffer if. The UK and the US kind of break ties. Well, I don't. I mean, I, listen. I, I hope my prepared remarks didn't come across as you know too apocalyptic for the relationship. I, I mean, our relationship is not going to fall apart.、Um, our, our, our relationship is going to remain strong. It's going to remain special.、Um, but、uh, 
uh, it, it just is going to be fraught with a, 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 with more tension, and there'll be. And I just want to make sure people here know, and that's why I, you know I, I made these specific comments about the trade deal. I am worried that people are overly optimistic about the the, the potential for this for this trade deal to be a key follow-on from the departure from uh, from Europe. Um, and, and so, you know, nothing changes the fact that we will still likely be each other's first call. It just is going to be much harder for us to affect change internationally if nobody wants to listen to either of us. Um, if the United States pulls out of every major international agreement, if Britain is no longer part of Europe, we can be in all the agreement we want to be in together, but then what forum are we going to go to to try to enact the agreement that we've come to? Um, and so that's the position that we find ourselves in. We're no longer in the uh, Human Rights Commission at the UN. We're no longer in the Paris Agreement. We're no longer in the Iran nuclear agreement. You're about to no longer be in Europe. That just all of that greatly weakens um, the United States and Britain uh, together. Um, now, Britain should get out of the military coalition with Saudi Arabia. Um, and I give you that advice because I have been leading the fight to get the United States out of our military relationship with Saudi Arabia and Yemen for the last three years. This is a moral, humanitarian, and national security disaster. Um, and it is maddening to me that the world doesn't see the fact that not only uh, has this military campaign um, that involves both the Houthis as bad actors and the Saudis as bad actors killed 85,000 kids under the age of five, but it has allowed AQAP, which is the arm of Al-Qaeda most capable of doing damage to you and to us, uh, to get stronger and stronger. Um, and part of the reason that the United States administration stays in is because Britain's still in. If Britain rethought the association with Saudi Arabia, it would prompt, it would give less reason for the Trump administration uh, to stay all in as well. Let's take the fellow down here at the end in the green shirt. Sure. Uh, Robbie, thank you for coming, Senator. So with India and Indonesia going to be two of the largest economies in the world within 20 years, and more generally South Asia going to play a larger role in the world economy, what is Congress, the civil service, and your subcommittee done to strengthen our relationship and court these emerging economies, as well as to counter China's one belt, one road policy, or is the executive branch's disregard towards this region ceded long-term advantage to Beijing? I, I mean, the, uh, the, the latter, um, ra rather than the former, we have ceded advantage to, uh, to China. Um, but what do we do about it? Um, so um, I mentioned, you know, how little support there is in the United States for free trade agreements. And on that list was the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which um, was an effort to try to give countries in and around China's periphery uh, an alternative. Uh, to a um, uh, to to a, a primary economic relationship with China, or at least allow countries to hedge and have a relationship with China, but understand that there was an economic association um, uh, that could provide them with economic outlets as well. Um, until uh, the U.S. domestic policy comes around to answering Americans' concerns about how they compete in the global economy, it's going to be hard to pass 
another version of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, but I would argue we should give it a try. I mean, I would argue that we should go back uh, and see if we can reconstruct a version of the Trans-Pacific Partnership side by side with domestic economic reforms that answer people's legitimate concerns. Um, second, um, I, 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 there's so much more room for U.S. development authorities to play in um, making good repayable loans uh, to countries abroad uh, competing with offers from China. You know, we almost lost the import-export bank in the United States because there is a wing of the Republican Party that simply doesn't believe that the United States government should be in the business of helping lend money to anybody anywhere around the world. We have these artificial limits that we put on our development authorities in which we only allow them to lend a certain amount of money, even though they could lend 10 times as much and still get repaid and put money back into the Treasury. Uh, we recently passed a, um, a U.S. refinancing authority reform bill that simplifies the structure of the agencies, um, but we can also give them a lot more authority. We're never going to have as much money to throw around the world as China is, um, but we can certainly um, do a lot more than we are today. Uh, one specific piece of good news here, um, uh, myself and several conservative Republicans introduced uh, new legislation to create a $1 billion uh, energy independence financing arm of the U.S. government. Uh, $1 billion to be used to make loans around the world to help countries become energy independent of whatever their foreign source is. Obviously, we're sort of thinking mostly of uh, Russia, but could be used to counteract other uh, sort of petro-rich countries as well. Um, this is a piece of legislation that has a lot of bipartisan support in the House and the Senate and might be something that, that we could offer to Asian countries as well. I, I want to just pick up on the thread, the, the reference to um, Belt and Road and, and China. There's a lot of people who, it seems to me, think that this is a question really about like the politics of China and the United States who think that the U.S. is moving in a direction kind of towards a Soviet-style containment strategy towards China, that the, the emphasis on engagement or even a modified version of that, like engagement, that it's kind of hedging, not full-throttle engagement and integration with China, that the U.S. is backing off and they – they, you know, TPP is sometimes interpreted in that way, that it was an attempt, well, it wasn't to integrate China's neighbors more fully with the United States. It was also kind of pushing back against China itself. Um, and now with Trump labeling China as a strategic rival in the national security strategy, the attempt to disrupt the supply chains and the kind of trade war, do you get the sense that that's the drift politically in the United States to a kind of harder line towards towards China? I mean, in some ways, he's actually stolen the thunder of Democrats on the trade issue. He's done it in a way that few Democrats would have done it, it seems to me. But Democrats were the ones for a long time mm -hmm. pressing this issue. So I'm just wondering if you sense there's drift politically or, or is this just chatter among like the kind of foreign policy intellectuals in well, the U.S.? Well, listen, I, I think China desires a relationship with the United States. China wants a world in which 
the United States and China are making decisions together. Um, they don't exactly know how to get to that place, um, but uh, and, and certainly the Trump administration doesn't doesn't know how or arguably want to get to that place either. Um, but I think we're going to have to accept that this is going to be a horribly convoluted, confusing relationship for a very long time. That we are going to have to pick our spots uh, in order to find ways to work together. Venezuela is a perfect example of a crisis whereby a halfway functional U.S.-China relationship could have major impact. Russia wants Venezuela to be a mess. As long as Venezuela, Venezuelan oil is off the market, uh, Russia is making money. Um, China does not want Venezuela to be a mess. Venezuela owes China a, a lot of dough, and China relies on the flow of that oil. Um, and so a functional relationship between our two countries could uh, have helped land the Venezuela crisis in, uh, in a different place. And, you know, TPP is and was, um, you know, an effort to allow for us to coexist with China in and around their periphery, not to try to force countries to make a decision whether they align themselves with China or us, but to make sure that there's room for both our economic vision and China's economic vision. Um, and again, my worry about the weakening of Europe and the inability of us, of our, of the United States to get a trade deal with the European Union um, is that as China grows bigger and bigger, I don't think the United States or Europe can take them on individually. Um, I think that uh, if we want to make sure that it is our version of uh, the global economic rules that prevail, we've got to uh, we've got to join. Uh, we've got to join together. So I think it's just going to be a big mess of a relationship. Um, I, don't, I think Donald Trump has forsaken several opportunities to work with the Chinese uh, on problems that instead he has gone uh, alone. And I think right now he has no understanding on how to land this trade. Uh, dispute um, and would have been much better off if he had some partners going into that dispute um, uh, here in Europe. Uh, well, I've got, I'll start back there and then I'll come to you. A lot of what you're saying um, makes a lot of sense to me. It's very centrist. Um, but I wonder, um, you know, in your opening remarks, you said that um, this problem with Trump could be temporary and we could move back from it. Um, at the same time that Trump is pulling everything to the right, the Democratic Party appears to be pulling pretty far to the left. Um, so I, in that context, I wondered if you could speculate about what might happen in the next general election and what it might mean if we have another round uh, of Trump. And maybe as a sweetener, if we have a, a second referendum, uh, <laughs> in the United Kingdom. Yeah, listen, I think this, que this question of what's happening inside the Democratic Party is a really interesting one. Um, but, you know, ideas like m Medicare availability for all Americans or free education through the 14th grade aren't that radical and, and don't actually enjoy fringe support in the United States. Um, depending on how you ask the question about Medicare for all, it, it, can, it can get over 50% of support in the United States. Um, there are big numbers of Americans who do think you need to readjust the education guarantee in our country so that we um, give free public education beyond uh, 12th grade. Um, and so some people say, oh, the Democratic Party, you know, is moving left. Um, well, you know, maybe the Democratic Party is 
understanding the new political and economic realities of the world and seeking to adjust uh, our rules to, um, to cover the outstanding liabilities that, uh, that exist. What's wonderful is that, you know, we have 78 candidates running for president as Democrats, <laughs> and they're, when, when the whole field is done, um, they're going to run the gamut of folks who you'd argue are further to the left to the center uh, of the economic debate, and the Democratic electorate will get the chance to choose, will have this debate in real time about you know, how far right or left the Democratic Party is going. But I actually don't, you know, I, I don't think some of these ideas which are categorized as left um, are, are seen that way by the American public. You know, political pundits tend to label ideas uh, in a way that is often belied by the way that the American public actually looks at them. You know, I heard a story today, a report that Joe Biden, when he announces, is going to announce his vice president. Have you had any conversations <laughs> about this gentleman right up here has waited patiently? Evening, Senator. Um, you've talked already about the dangers of Brexit, so thanks for the warnings. Um, <laughs> on the basis the UK has voted for Brexit, let's make the wild assumption that it does happen in happen. some format. What benefits for the special relationship can you see um, coming from that, and how will you and the Foreign Relations Committee um, you know, support those kind of opportunities? Um. Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, it, it could have the possibility of uh, deepening Britain's commitment to NATO. Uh, you know, so there, you know, my my hope is that we could become stronger partners in trying to strengthen the transatlantic uh, security uh, relationship. Um, obviously, the president has um, thrown a lot of stones at NATO, and there's no doubt that NATO needs some work to. Uh, reform and readjust itself to meet the real new threats of, uh, of this century, and perhaps we're able to deepen our partnership in, uh, in that respect. I'm trying to come up with number two. <laughs> um, so, and listen, I, again, I'm, what I'm saying about the trade agreement is that I think you've got to give an honest run at a Europe agreement first. Um, and um, there's a, also a theory of the case that y Europe may be prompted to push a little harder for a trade agreement if they know that Britain is in line and if they are obstinate about uh, entering into real negotiations that Britain may jump the line. I'm, you know, I was careful to say I'm not saying I will not support a Britain, a, a Brit an agreement with Britain if we don't have an agreement with the EU. I'm saying we need to give a run at an agreement with the EU. Um, and you may be a little bit more willing to work with us if people like me say, if you don't sit down and negotiate in good faith, then we're going to go sign an agreement with Britain. So maybe that's maybe there maybe there is an opportunity to push the European agreement uh, further. So I guess those would be my two tries at the silver lining. How about the woman in the center? Yeah. Um. And can I can I add a third as it's going to? Yeah, why not? So, so my, I guess my third is. That the peace process hasn't been going so well for the last few years, given that we haven't had a government in uh, Belfast, and I, and I think the United States has kind of taken its eyes off of 
the Good Friday Agreement and that process and the fact that it needs constant uh, um, attention from its friends. And so to the extent that this moment has sort of shifted both London's focus and, um, and, and Washington's focus back to what is a still very fragile uh, peace process in Ireland, maybe that has unintended consequences as well. We're talking potentially about, you know, naming a new political envoy to Belfast. Maybe that wouldn't have happened if not for uh, these developments. And who knows? Maybe that ultimately is a is a is a positive development. So, all right, I got three. I got three positive <laughs> things that come out of Back it. Here, and then I'll come um, yes. For all of the similarities the U.S. and the U.K. do have, one area in which we are extremely different is our healthcare systems. Um, here in the UK, we have the NHS, which is quite widely liked and provides health care to all people, whereas in the States, we don't have that. Um, what do you think the biggest barriers are to achieving universal health care are in the States in your experience? Um, well, I think there's a widespread, you know, admission at this point in the States that the foundations of our system are fundamentally broken um, because we, we have a lot of success to talk about over the last 10 years in the United States. We um, insured 20 million new people that didn't have insurance prior. We cut the number of personal bankruptcies in the United States in half. In five years, we cut the number of personal bankruptcies in the United States by 50% simply because very few people go bankrupt because of medical costs any longer because everybody has access to an um, uh, affordable health care plan if they uh, so wish. Um, and yet, costs are still skyrocketing and out-of-pocket expenses for families are still um, too big and the system is so convoluted and confusing that it drives people nuts trying to interact with it. And so healthcare, even after the Affordable Care Act is passed, is still the number one issue uh, for the American public. So I think there is an understanding that, um, that there needs to be um, top-down reform. The biggest barrier is that um, there is just a total, complete lack of faith in the ability of the American government to fix anything. There's, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's a complete lack of trust in government in the United States. And it's interesting to hear, I heard today um, some people express some real reservations about a rhetorical turn that the Prime Minister had taken in the last few days um, about blaming Parliament for being so out of touch with the people and sort of pitting Parliament against the people. Um, and, and I thought how quaint that was to worry about that because we've been doing that to ourselves <laughs> in the United States for 20 years. We've been bludgeoning ourselves um, and, and, and constantly talking about how inept government is uh, for decades, which makes it very hard to pass any major health care reform legislation that puts the government at a, at a, at a, at more in the center of the solution. My, you know, my proposal um, is a piece of legislation that I'm about to introduce for the second time, which would allow any American family, any American individual, or any American business to be able to buy into the Medicare system, um, a universal ability to buy a Medicare plan uh, at cost. Um, that is different than Bernie Sanders' plan, which would just sort of eliminate private insurance and everybody would go on to Medicare um, by legislative fiat. Uh, I, I think that 
over time, uh, the plan that I've introduced will become the most popular because it allows for the market to figure out whether people want private insurance or public insurance and, and doesn't make that decision for people through a piece of legislation. I think whatever big transition comes next uh, has to have consumer choice at the heart of it. Government can have a lot to do with what choices are available, but the ultimate choice as to what kind of insurance is the new norm in the United States has to be a choice that consumers make. Chris. And, and be careful because he's live blogging this event. So. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here tonight, Senator. My question is actually from, from Twitter, from the internet. So um, Twitter user at Riley MC Smith wants to know, is it a problem that many people in the U.S. don't understand Brexit? Is it something they should be fully educated on given the misinformation that has been spread on, on its implications to the U.K. and the EU? I, I mean, I, so I, I'm trying to figure out how big a problem it is. I mean, Americans have a lot to worry about these days. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know that I would recommend that all of my constituents, you know, take time away from their kids you know, uh, basketball and baseball schedules to become studied experts on Brexit. Um, I don't know that it's that important uh, to the people that I represent. I am concerned that there are still very few members of Congress that understand um, what the true implications of Brexit are. And so I guess my recommendation would be that um, political decision makers um, spend more time understanding what the consequences of Britain leaving the EU are uh, for the United States uh, and for our mutual security concerns uh, with uh, with Europe. If this is this is consuming your country and uh, it is not consuming ours, um, and, and I don't recommend that it should, uh, but it should probably consume more time uh, of members of Congress than it does uh, today. Richard, question right now. <laughs> Um, good evening. I'm Richard. I was a postgraduate here a few years ago. Um, I'd like to know more about the companies you met today. You made reference to American corporates. Who were they? What was the message? Um, also, as well, sure you would like to know. Yeah. I'm going to tell you. Um, what type of companies? And you know, you mentioned that free trade is uh, you know a dirty word, or no one supports that in America, but. Um, or few people do, or fewer people do. But I'd imagine that the message from the corporations you met today were primarily about free trade and access to trade. So I just want to sort of square that in my mind and how you're thinking about it. No, right. Um, yeah, so I met with a you know, cross-section of U.S. companies today, many in the financial services space, others in the products and pharmaceutical uh, space. Um, you know, I, I think there were a couple, you know, a couple concerns that, that, that they consistently raised. The first was um, that the effect on them will be slow in building, um, that it may be in the short run uh, that Europe won't change the rules of the game, and thus financial services companies who, who are servicing clients in Germany can continue to do so from Belfast. But at some point, Europe will see the leverage they have over countries that are doing service work in Europe that are, that are located outside of Europe and require those companies to move employees into the European Union. And so some of these companies didn't contemplate thousands of jobs being eliminated in 2019, but thought that that would ultimately be a likely consequence for some of their work. 
Uh, others were worried about the fact that this debate will, is not going to end anytime soon, even if this agreement is signed, um, because so many of the details uh, are still left undone. Um, and, and so they, the uncertainty that has caused a lot of them to just stop building capacity in Britain doesn't end, even if the prime minister's deal gets finished, because there are still so many open questions uh, that have to be fleshed out over the next two years. And so the, the continuation of the uncertainty um, is, uh, is of concern to them uh, as, uh, as well. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that those were probably the two um, those conversations. There's a woman right up here, yeah. Uh, right down here. And then from the, I think I mentioned this before, but from the financial services companies, I think they are, wor they are worried about this version of Brexit in which um, you, you stay in the customs union without having a seat at the table. Um, and so they worry about um, what happens if they have to abide by rules that Britain doesn't have a role in setting. Hi there. So my question is about China. I understand that there's a lot of concern in the international community about unfair trading practice in China, like forced IP transfer and um, huge state subsidies. Um, but there's also been a lot of criticism of Donald Trump's aggressive approach to China. Um, would you say that the rest of the international community could do that is more constructive to tackle these grievances? So um, I think for a long time, I'll say this is a predicate, a lot of people warned the United States not to engage in um, punitive trade actions against China because it would start a trade war. Many of us believe that we have been in a trade war with China for a long time. It's just that China is the only one that's fighting it um, and that it was time for the United States to get tough. So I, um, so I don't disagree with the President's general interest in ratcheting up the consequences for the way that China cheats. My two objections to the method in which he has done that are, first, um, he does not have the power to do it without working with Congress. So he, he has used this national security exception. Um, if he wants to uh, engage in long-term tariff setting against the Chinese economy, he needs an act of Congress to do that. And two, we would be much better off if he was doing that with you or with Europe. We are much stronger if we are engaged in a multilateral trade strategy vis-a-vis -vis China than in a unilateral strategy. Um, and then third, you know, the, 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 the oxygen that this administration has uh, to do anything internationally is, is very limited. And so um, the problem is our entire relationship with China right now is about trade. And it, it shouldn't be that way. We should be able to argue with them about trade, but then still be able to talk to them about North Korea or Venezuela or a host of other issues. And the problem is we're not making any progress on other issues because everybody that's working the China book right now is focused on this question of the trade dispute that seems to have no end. You know, I want to go back to the business question. It's yeah. just slightly different. Um, so your neighbor, um, Senator Warren from Massachusetts, um, has recently called for 
breaking up the big tech giants, um, Amazon, Facebook, Google. Um, where do you come down on that? What do you think about that? Actually, maybe not even just you yourself, but for the Democratic Party as a position. Uh, so I have not seen her specific proposal, so I, I don't have a, a comment on her specific proposal. But, um, you know, there is growing concern on both sides of the aisle as to the market power um, that uh, these organizations uh, have um, and the long-term effects on the U.S. economy. Um, you know, even in the most interesting startup industries, like, for instance, self-driving vehicles, mm -hmm. it's those small handful of companies that are dominating the space. If you are a small startup technology company um, in a brand new field in Silicon Valley, your hope is that eventually you will be bought by Facebook or Google uh, or Amazon. Um, ultimately, uh, history tells us that that's not actually how breakthrough innovations happen. It's not normally the big landed companies that make the breakthrough discoveries. It is the small startups that resist the temptation uh, to join with bigger entities and push forward with their belief about how their technology is going to change the world. And so for all of the attention that is lavished on these companies as to how their innovations have changed the way in which we talk to each other and buy things, it may be that they are actually frustrating the next set of breakthrough technologies by buying up all the companies that are doing some of the early stage innovative work. Um, so that is just sort of one subset of concerns that exists um, when it comes to, you know, how these countries, how these uh, companies are starting to dominate, um, dominate our space. So I, I think that Elizabeth has started a very worthwhile conversation. Um, and I hope that other presidential candidates and other members of the Senate and Congress um, pick it up without opining on her specific plan. Okay. Right back there. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you, Senator. Um, I know how much you like talking about China, but uh, I just thought I'd ask a question about to get your thoughts on the current situation in Western China of the government putting over a million Uyghur Muslims in internment camps and I wanted to get your thoughts. Like, have you guys had any discussions within the Foreign Relations Committee of how to deal with these atrocities? And just your thoughts in general. Well, we we have, and you know, once again, back to my concerns about the limitation of this administration's China policy. Um, human rights isn't anywhere in the discussion today, uh, with respect to the way that the Trump administration deals with China. Human rights, frankly, isn't anywhere in this administration's foreign policy uh, writ large. Uh, and, and that's greatly worrying. If the United States isn't uh, raising concerns about the treatment of uh, Muslims inside China, then who is? Um, we have given the president uh, all sorts of sanctioned power. He chooses not to use it. He chooses not to raise these issues uh, sitting across the table from, uh, from China. Um, and frankly, I'd link this conversation back to the one we were just having about the, these technology companies. One of the most worrying things is the way in which China is using technology uh, to track the movements and the activity of communities uh, which they seek to repress uh, and control. Um, and there's very little conversation in the United States um, about having a conversation with these big technology companies about how uh, they they can be sensitive 
uh, to handing population control technologies to autocrats and despots around uh, the world. Um, uh, th these new technologies are becoming the tools of repressive regimes, and China is modeling many of these technologies in those provinces. Um, and so while I wish we were pressing the case more directly with the Chinese, and Congress can do some of that ourselves, uh, I also think that there's a private sector conversation to be had um, that isn't occurring right now in any meaningful form. Um, woman right in the, right next to you in the center, right. Hi, thank you so much. So I have a question um, specifically about foreign aid. You mentioned earlier the importance of the State Department and um, engaging internationally beyond the military. And so Trump's budgets have obviously um, proposed major, major slashes to U.S. foreign aid through USAID, which hasn't happened, thankfully. Um, but I'm wondering what you see as the future of development aid, you know, what you think that sort of the Trump administration does have control over um, in that domain, how the sort of America first rhetoric might affect the way that the U.S. engages through, you know, more standardized development assistance. So you're right that the cuts haven't happened, but that's not good news. All we've done is hold the line on uh, foreign aid spending. Well, once again, the military side of the budget escalates by $50 billion uh, a year. Um, and so... Um, you know, we have all the evidence we need of the impact of global development aid. Um, you know, PEPFAR is obviously the crown jewel, but the story of PEPFAR is not just the lives it's saved. It's the, uh, all of the advancements that have been made in those countries with respect to development dollars. Um, we're making countries more stable. We're providing more prophylactic against extremist groups who try to trade in those places. Um, where America is not. Um, so, uh, you know, again, my, you know, my pitch to my colleagues is not that we shouldn't continue to plus up the military side of the uh, budget, but that we should be making massive investments in the development side as well. Holding the line um, simply isn't uh, simply isn't sufficient today, and it's a gift to Russia and to China when year after year we're spending the same amount of money uh, on the development side. Think of it this way: here's the most there are all of these sort of fascinating statistics. So today, um, there are more people working in U.S. military grocery stores than there are diplomats in the State Department. Um, that's how much bigger the U.S. military budget is than the State Department budget. But here's another one, and this is a stat over time. Right after the Cold War, when we're rolling out the Marshall Plan, the United States is spending about 3% of GDP on foreign aid democracy development dollars. Three percent of our GDP is spent trying to make the world safer by spreading economic development and democracy development dollars around the world. Today, that number is 0.01 percent of the federal government. We've, we've diminished the amount of money we are spending on non-military aid overseas by 98 percent. And so it's no wonder that America seems to be losing more than it's winning around the world because we simply aren't present um, in the way that we used to, with the exception of our military presence, uh, which, you know, again, has its limitations. So, uh, you know, I've lost the argument uh, here um, in, in with the Trump administration. Uh, hopefully I can win it with the next administration. Good time for a couple more questions. Um, how about the woman way in the, in the back there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Didn't you have your hand up? 
You Thanks. didn't ask a question. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. Thank you for being here. Um, so my question is about Russia more broadly. The administration announced earlier this year that it would be withdrawing from the INF Treaty, which prompted Democrats who were running for president who, and who had announced by that time that they would support legislation banning first use of nuclear weapons by basically President Trump. I wanted to get your thoughts on that sort of general issue and that specific proposal, as well as sort of get your sense of what the implications might be for the New START Treaty, which is due to be renewed in 2021. Well, I, I think the, Trump's, the Trump administration's desire is to get out of New START as well. So I think the Trump administration doesn't want to be in the nuclear business with Russia any longer. Um, and I think that's just more broadly part of their strategy to promote U.S. sovereignty and to unwind as many multilateral and bilateral agreements as possible. Um, now, the Trump administration has not said that. They have not. They, they, they have played coy on what their New START strategy is going to be. Um, but I think it can be predicted by the actions that they've taken on uh, INF. Listen, INF is a tough nut to crack. There's no doubt that the Russians have been cheating, and, and cheating in big ways for a long time. Um, it is a legitimate question to ask as to whether um, you are doing more damage than good to U.S. national security interests by staying in an agreement in which your partner is cheating. Um, what message does that send with the United States if there's no consequence to Russia when they cheat? I think this is a really hard question. I advise the administration to stay in the agreement uh, because I think it, it was much more likely that we are ultimately going to be able uh, to um, compel uh, um, uh, fealty to the agreement inside it than outside of it. And I really do worry about what Russia will do now that we're outside um, the agreement. What they've done has been not so hot, but it may get even worse. But at the same time, I understand the, the other – I do understand the argument that the Trump administration is, is making, and, I, and, I, and, and, the st and the existing state of, of affairs couldn't last – um, indefinitely. At some point, if Russia was not coming back into compliance, sent to other partners in uh, other agreements. One last question. That gentleman in the middle had his hand up earlier. You still, you still game? Got a question? Last question. Uh, good evening, uh, Senator. Just, uh, I'm Douglas Chapman. I'm a member of the House of Commons. Um, so we're in the same business, but if you say something unpopular, you're quite near the door. And if I say something unpopular, then uh, I've got a, a ready-made ready -made lunch mob around. Um, I don't know my way out, so no. <laughs> I ran out the door, you find um, me. What we say is, uh, obviously, I don't want to mention the B word, but the and uh, you mentioned earlier about Yemen, and there's been quite a lot of activity this week in House Commons and uh, Parliament, uh, just about the campaign um, regarding the humanitarian crisis that's there. And, you know, we're on the same page, I think, in terms of uh, denying Saudi Arabia any more arms, which I think makes it more difficult for the peace process to actually take hold and makes the job of the UN uh, envoy much more difficult. But what I really wanted to ask about was if there's light at the end of the Yemen tunnel, and perhaps there is, Ukraine is a, a, a pretty tough nut to, to try and crack. 
And I just wondered what your views might be on the outcome of the presidential elections that are coming up, I think, this ne next weekend, uh, whether there's an additional role from America's point of view for the NATO Russia Council to have a bit more uh, force behind it. And I think and the, the other issue is just on Ukraine and the level of uh, corruption that is within the country. A stronger Ukraine might be in a better position to actually force Russia's hand in a number of instances. And that's a long question. In one minute. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, listen, I, I, I think we have, we have misplayed uh, Ukraine by not providing them more support for their anti-corruption and government reform endeavors. We have, you know, offered them lots of stick and not enough carrot in the instances where the United States has helped fund specific anti-corruption projects inside Ukraine, we've had great success. We partnered with them on a reform of the Kyiv police force, um, a police force that was just laughably corrupt um, for uh, decades um, that has had much success. But generally, we have just told Ukraine that they need to shape up uh, or the consequence will be the withdrawal of IMF aid or U.S. lending capacity instead of actually giving them the assistance uh, and, the, and the expertise to get uh, the, job, uh, the job done. Um, I also have been someone that, that, has, that has thought that um, we should give Ukraine a little bit more time and a little bit more pace on their reforms. Uh, I think it's really you know, hard uh, to rearrange your house when it's on fire. Um, and Russia has been playing a long game here. They think if they keep the conflict simmering long enough that they will eventually outlast the West's patience to engage with Ukraine, uh, and they will then swoop in with a deal um, uh, to end the conflict, to inject new money into the Ukrainian economy that will be impossible uh, for the West to match given our sort of withering tolerance for the lack of reform. Um, so uh, I, I, I won't specifically opine as to the presidential candidates except to say that um, I worry that we're going to look back on these last five years as a lost opportunity where we should have been engaged with a kind of Marshall Plan for Ukraine with real hard dollars um, that would have helped them make the reforms that were very difficult for them to make, uh, for, very difficult for them to make uh, on, uh, on their own. Um. So um, the senator has a, an interview with, um, with the BBC. Apparently this the comment about Britain and trade with the United States <laughs> is out there. Um, and so he's going to be leaving uh, shortly. Um, and um, if we all need to just stay seated until he's um, out of the room. But um, let me just say, I mean, we started with the UK and Brexit I don't think I've got all the countries here, but we talked about, you talked about China, we took you to Russia, you went to Yemen, Indonesia, the Ukraine, that other big country, Amazon. Um, so, you know, I, I, Senator, I think you chose very well in joining the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Very well, good. Um, it's a great I, pleasure. Well, I'm so excited to see, you know, such a, a, a community of learning here so engaged in the U.S. Uh, Britain relationship. Um, I came here with warnings. I did. Um, I, I hope I came here with some truth about what the uh, what the what the real story is uh, in the United States, not just what you may hear in, in op eds. Um, but I also 
come here with a belief that um, our relationship can sustain and survive anything. Um, and uh, no matter what happens here in the next few uh, days, um, that unbreakable special relationship um, is there for as long as you want it, uh, because uh, we want it forever. So I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, you very everybody. Much. So that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. This Ballpark extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rear Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all of our previous episodes and extra innings, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're actually ad-free. For more information about the LSE United States Centre, visit www.lse.ac.uk forward slash United States. That's United States with a hyphen, by the way. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk or send us a tweet at lse underscore us and tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the US Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening. Wait, wait.